Eagles Entertainment. Compassionate and trusted care. Clinical expertise. It's the cornerstone of NovaCare Rehabilitation and why they're the leading provider of physical therapy throughout the Delaware Valley. Don't let aches and pains or any injury slow you down. Schedule an appointment today at NovaCare.com. The Philadelphia Eagles choose NovaCare. So can you. NovaCare, the power of physical therapy. Welcome to Return Game, Birds, Boys, and Bad Blood. I'm your host, Rob Ellis. And I'm Derek Gunn. Welcome to the 1990s. It was a decade filled with Doc Martens, flannel, wallet chains, and a struggling Philadelphia Eagles team. The Birds flew through this decade with true success just out of their reach. They were the runners-up in the NFC East four times. Their intimidation factor of the 1980s began to wane in the 90s, due in large part to their neighbors to the South. Their rivals, the Cowboys, had weathered some rebuilding years and were ascending. Even to players, it seemed like a done deal. We knew that Dallas was now a formidable opponent. The rebuild was over, and they were moving into that phase of dominance. If you've been listening along this season, you know the Eagles had their fair share of lean years. Being the underdog is something we luxuriate in. But the status only carries us so far, and it is infuriating when the Cowboys are the team in the conference that keeps winning. And winning, and winning some more. I'm going to stop you right there. But through the ups and downs, fans and players maintain their mantra. Beat the Cowboys. I can remember one of Buddy's press conferences. He said, you know, if we don't win but two games a year, you can damn well believe we're going to beat Dallas's ass twice a year. And boy, did some of the games in the first half of this decade keep fans coming back for more. It was 1991. George H.W. Bush was in the White House. The Hubble Telescope was launched. The United States won the first ever FIFA Women's World Cup in China against Norway. In November, Ed Rendell was elected mayor of the City of Brotherly Love. The Eagles wrapped the 1990 season with a solid 10-6 and record. It was now January, the offseason. Eagles owner Norman Brayman decided to make a coaching change. After five years, he fired Buddy Ryan. But who did Norman Brayman believe could replace Buddy Ryan? Merrill Reese and Seth Joyner take it from here. They announced that they were considering Rich Kotite and Jeff Fisher, who was the defensive coordinator. The defensive guys loved Fisher. And then later that afternoon, the Eagles announced that Rich Kotite was chosen as the new head coach, which did not go over well. I think everybody on the defensive side of the ball was pretty upset about it and pretty rebellious towards the new coaching staff that was coming in at the beginning. So to see him relieve his duties, you know, to say that guys were really upset would be an understatement. Rich Kotite replaced Buddy Ryan, and things were a touch tense with the new coach. But Bud Carson, a tough-minded defensive guy, joined the team. He continued to build the Eagles' defense into one of the most feared in the league. If you are interested in more details about this era of Eagles' hard-hitting football and Bud Carson's defense, I encourage you to listen to Return Game, House of Pain Game. In 1991, Ray Dittinger remembers teams across the league shivering at the thought of playing the Eagles' defense. They weren't just good. They were scary good. They were a dominant defense in a way that I hadn't seen many defenses be. I mean, that particular defense ranked with the Bears of 85. One six-two, two 292-pound reason gangrene was so intimidating? Jerome Brown. 
He was born in Florida and played for the University of Miami under coach Jimmy Johnson. You know the man who replaced Tom Landry as the Cowboys head coach. Brown was drafted in the first round by the Eagles in 1987. So in the early 90s, he was playing against his former Miami coach. Besides being a powerhouse on the field, Brown had an intangible quality. He was kind of the, the guy who lit the fuse on game day. That's the catalyst. You need that one guy who's the fire starter. And that was really Jerome. Sure, Brown provided a spark for gang green, but there was another side to number 99. Nate Newton Jr. was a guard for the Cowboys. He and Brown have some history. I love Jerome. That is my homeboy. He's from Brooksville, Florida. I'm from Orlando, Florida. We're not that far apart. Jerome has always affected my life. Not always in a positive way. And let me tell you why. I used to date this girl named Jennifer at Florida and m Guess who took my girlfriend? Jerome Brown took my girlfriend. He came to Florida and m all the way from University of Miami and took my girlfriend. That ain't nice. A few years later, after the Jennifer incident, Newton and Brown found themselves lining up against each other. I'm at the Dallas Cowboys, and guess who the Eagles drafted in the first round from the University of Miami? Jerome Brown. Guess who Jerome Brown lines up against? Me. And he was so nice. Hey, Nate Newton, what's up, homeboy? How you doing? Well, besides you taking my girlfriend, Jerome, I'm doing all right. (laughs) But when he was on the field, Brown was a really dominant player. Brown, along with Mike Golick, Clyde Simmons, and Seth Joyner, relished their reputation. They liked it. They wanted to be the biggest, baddest team on the block. And if you wanted to call them bullies, go ahead and call them bullies. They didn't mind that at all. It wasn't just body language. It was for real. That's the kind of defense they played, and they were good at it, and everybody in the league knew it. And one cowboy in particular was going to feel the hurt very soon. Troy Aikman was the first overall pick in the 1989 NFL Draft for the Dallas Cowboys. He eventually would become a Hall of Famer, but his first season, it was rough. His record was 0-11 as a starter. Calvin Williams, who joined the Eagles in 1990 as a wide receiver, says he saw something in Aikman. Great talent, uh, was an awesome quarterback. Um, You could tell the way he stood in the pocket and the way He threw the ball when he got an opportunity. You knew he was going to be good. It was just a matter of putting the components around him. Well, that season, Aikman didn't have the support he needed. Number eight racked up two losses against the Eagles that year. So what kind of threat was he? Very little. To Gang Green, the name lovingly used to refer to the Eagles' defense, they could pretty much dominate anyone who got in their way. In 1990, Aikman went down at the vet. Clyde Simmons hit him hard. He fell on his shoulder and separated it. That was the end of his season. He had surgery and rehabbed in the offseason and was ready for a rematch in Texas Stadium the next season. Dallas was clearly in rebuild mode, but that didn't mean we were going to take it any easier on any less. It was just a heck of a day. Fast forward to Sunday, September 15, 1991. Kickoff is 1 p.m. It's 81 degrees and 77% humidity. Sellout crowd at Texas Stadium. Over 60,000 to see the 1-1 Eagles take on the 1-1 Dallas Cowboys. As far as the 
Philadelphia Eagles are concerned. They're going to get the ball first. The Eagles have won the toss. Ken Willis kicking off, and it's down in the end zone by Thomas Sanders. It was fun for us to broadcast because of the fact that it was the Dallas Cowboys, and Troy Aikman was the golden boy, and uh, here's this tough Eagles defense. They really got after him. It quickly became clear to Nate Newton. This game was about one thing, taking out Troy Aikman. I'm the offensive lineman that was part of this sack. Disaster. Mike Golick says it was Clyde Simmons, the six foot six, two 280-pound defensive end, the same guy who separated Aikman's shoulder who led the charge. Clyde was basically the quiet assassin. Didn't say two words out there on the field. You know, certainly he, we had our fun off the field. So it wasn't shocking to me that he had four and a half sacks in that game. We couldn't stop Clyde Simmons because he was just a, a hell of a pass rusher. And Clyde Simmons wasn't alone. Mike Pitts had one. Reggie White had one. I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to get close up on you here. When you give up one sack, you say, oh, okay. When you give up two sacks, you say, ah, not a good day. When you give up three sacks, you go to wondering. And when you give up four sacks, you know you're in for a long, long day. Jerome Brown had one, then another, and then a half. If two guys get to the quarterback at the same time, they each get a half. Even Mike Golick got there. And that game, you know it's going well for us when I get two and a half sacks. Because that's like a season for me. Nate Newton was on the field watching Troy Aikman taking this Eagles beating. These guys were pumped. They were banshees just hollering and screaming off the rock. And if they wasn't sacking him, they was hitting him. And I'm looking up. I'm like, wow, this kid getting killed. But the thing that I remember about that was the way Aikman handled it. And that day, man, he certainly proved his toughness because he got knocked down on every play and he kept getting back up. And I'm going to tell you how intense Troy was. I'm going to tell you what type of guy he is. He never said a word. He never said a word. He never downed us. He never talked about us. He got about the sack, which I know was hard and harder as the game went on. After the game, here's what Aikman had to say. I got hit a lot more than I cared. It was one of those days. We've been through it before. It was very frustrating. It was not a good day for anybody. Those are the kind of games that you dream about. And if you get multiple sacks and stuff like that in that game, you just decided about it. Because, you know, it was a good time for us. It was winning a ball game. To help put it in perspective, the entire 1991 season, Aikman was sacked a total of 32 times. 11 of them were delivered by the Eagles in one game. That left only 1.4 sacks per game for the rest of the teams that season. But what does Clyde Simmons, the man who racked up the most sacks that day, have to say for himself? Press and everything in Dallas was calling me a dirty player. He was like, no, no not a dirty player. It was just one of the bang-bang players. And so with him saying that, my respect level went up for him. That didn't change how I was trying to get after him. Now, I was still trying to tear his head off. But I respected him a lot more after that. Ray Dittinger was impressed by how Aikman dealt with the media. And I remember after the game in the locker room, the Dallas media – kept wanting him to say that the Eagles were dirty. He kept being asked questions about, you know, don't you feel they were rubbing it in? 
Don't you feel they were cheap shotting you? Don't you feel that they, they played dirty football? And I remember Aikman just standing there and saying, no, they're just that good. Christy Scales, a Dallas Cowboys sideline reporter, says that day the Eagles' defense was unstoppable. They just dominated the game. The Cowboys couldn't block them. Obviously, the worst beating that Troy Aikman ever took in his career. And the thing that's really disappointing about it, the Eagles were doing it with a four-man front. I mean, that's how bad the offensive line was back then. Uh, They didn't have to send a a lot of blitzers. And so if Troy Aikman were able to avoid that four-man pass rush and get the ball off, it was being intercepted on the back end. So that was... 24 to nothing, the Cowboys got beat, and they didn't even cross midfield until the last couple minutes of the game. They got it down in the red zone. That was just a complete beatdown, not just of Troy Eggman, but of the entire Cowboys offense. And for Nate Newton, those bad memories still lingered to this very day. We couldn't run the ball. We couldn't pass the ball. That was just a horrible, horrible day. We went in. Nobody really said anything to us. It was like we was lepers or something like that. We had something wrong with ourselves, and nobody wanted to be around us. We was the worst offensive line in America. Normally, you would have Reggie may have a good day, Clyde may have an all right day, and Jerome may just be all right. And that thing may have rotated during the season. But these guys hit on all cylinders at the same time on the same day against the Dallas Cowboys. That right there was glory day for them. It sure was Nate Newton. And to cap it off, Seth Joyner is going to rub it in just a little. In the moment you're just playing, the W is what you're after. You really don't think about a shutout until you probably get in the fourth quarter and you realize, oh, my God, we're up and they haven't scored. Then the focus and the onus is we got to keep them out of field goal range because you know they don't care about scoring a touchdown. They know that they've already lost the game. They just don't want to get goose egg, you know. But we were just so dominant that day that they knew they weren't scoring any points. Philadelphia shut out Dallas. The final tally, 24 to nothing. It was the Birds' eighth consecutive win over the Cowboys. As the Eagles entered the following season, Gang Green was still a force to be reckoned with, and the fans were optimistic about the upcoming season. Then Mike Golick's phone rang. I got a call from one of the people with the Eagles, and he just told me what happened. During the offseason, on June 25th, 1992, Jerome Brown, a beloved member of the D-line, died in a car accident. I just remember telling my wife, who got along with him great, we both just cried, cried hard. And I said, who else knows? And they said, well, they're making some calls. I said, well, let me help because the last thing in the world you want to do is find out through the media. So I called Clyde and Clyde was golfing at the time. And I remember he answered and I said who it was and had this smile and, oh, how you doing? You know, and I'm like, my God, I have to tell him one of his best friends is dead. I was in Charlotte, North Carolina, visiting friends and family. And Mike called me and, and let me know all that stuff. You know, like I said, it's trying time. A friend, a brother. At that time, he, him and Seth were my two closest friends. They were closest to me as my own brother. When I found out about that, like I said, it was one of those moments that you can't 
figure out why, you know, what happened, you know, all the stuff right there. So many questions. Once the questions are answered about how it happened or what happened and all the stuff, the next thing is, how's mom and pop doing? How's his mother and father doing? His death left his teammates, these guys who were his closest brothers, shocked and emotionally wrecked. Jerome was gone. That was very tough for all of us, especially on the line. He was a big part of the reason we were such a good defense, and he was gone. According to Brad Sham, the voice of the Cowboys, Brown's memory is still strong in Dallas. He was a phenomenal human being. He played one way hard, clean, hard, fearsome, and he was inspirational. I think there's no question that Jerome Brown was a generational player, but also personality in his locker room. And when you lose someone like that, the way the Eagles lost Jerome, that is going to leave a mark. That's an irreplaceable human being. He was a force. That season pushed guys like Golick and Joyner on and off the gridiron. So you held the team together for a while, and that was a tough one. But you got to go on and, and you got to play. You have different guys than, than what you had, but noticeably it was, it was a different defense. We knew that we were shorthanded. Even though we started off well, we were playing on pure energy. We were playing that season for a Bethel brother and Jerome. He had just passed away. So we were playing for his memory. When asked if Jerome had a special approach to taking on the Cowboys, Simmons says Jerome Brown approached every opponent with the same attitude. And he passed that mentality along to everyone he played with and probably against. Jerome's philosophy was just play hard, play with emotions, because he was an emotional player. He's going to let you know with his fire, with all the stuff that he did and how he played. When he played hurt, he played with emotions. And he was the emotional spark for our defense. His absence, though, was palpable. When he died that season, there was definitely a void. I mean, you walked in the locker room and it was not the same room. It's the best way to describe it. Before that, when he was there, you walked in that room, the first voice you heard was Jerome Brown. I mean, hollering, laughing, joking. I mean, he was just an enormous personality in addition to being an enormous talent. The team's rallying cry that year was bring it home for Jerome. They had the singular focus to make it to the Super Bowl to honor Brown. They had a memorial patch made up, JB and Eagles logo, that they wore on their jersey all year. The opening game of the season at the vet, Jerome's family came in uh, and the Eagles retired Jerome's number that day. They honored him that day. And from that point forward, the team really did play on a mission. It was a very real thing. They wanted to win this thing, and they wanted to win for Jerome. And um, it wasn't just lip service. I mean, it was something that was very real and very present every day during that season. The thing that I remember most about it was that they kept Jerome's locker exactly as it was. His locker remained right where it was. They didn't touch it. We were just trying to do everything we could to win every game that we could to honor his memory. It's tough to play 16 games with such a heavy burden, A, on your heart, and B, carrying that expectation of trying to do something 
for the memory of someone. So I remember that 1992 season was very, very difficult on all of us. The grieving Eagles had to bury those feelings and keep playing. By October, the rivals looked strong. It was October the 5th. They had just come off beating Denver and the John Elway Broncos 30 to nothing, shutting them out. And um, the Eagles were really playing well. And the Cowboys had gotten their act together, and they were a really good team. And the Cowboys were undefeated, and the Eagles were undefeated. With equal records, there was a lot at stake during this Monday night football game. The buildup to that game was all about, this is the game where we're going to see who is the Super Bowl favorite. Because everybody sort of identified that the Eagles and the Cowboys were the two best teams in the NFC. So the feeling was, okay, here's the game that's going to determine which of these two teams is best and which of the teams is probably going to go on and represent the NFC in the Super Bowl. That's the way the game was built. Yep. One advantage for the Eagles, the Cowboys were coming to Philadelphia. And Seth Joyner was feeling that Cowboy Week energy. Oh, it's electric. There's no doubt about it. Eagle fans across this nation on Monday morning know this Dallas Cowboy Week. And the focus is just different. The energy is just different. The environment is different on Dallas Cowboys Week. To heighten the excitement around the game, the crew at WIP, Philly Sports Talk Radio Station, floated the idea for a pregame show. WIP with Angelo Cataldi, the morning show guy, he made the recommendation. He said, why don't we start the pregame show with my show at 6 o'clock in the morning? We'll sign on. We'll do it from the tent right outside the stadium. And the station manager does the math and says, well, wait a minute. Kickoff is at 9 p.m. You're talking about a 15-hour pregame show. 15 hours in a tent outside the vet in October? There was no way this would work. Would it? Angelo's response was, you're going to find that 15 hours isn't enough. And he was right. I mean, there was... So much talk about this game, and there was so much anticipation and buildup to this game. They had no trouble filling 15 hours. It went straight from 6 in the morning right up to the kickoff at 9 p.m. I remember you had people camping out the day before in anticipation of the WIP 15-hour pregame marathon only in Philadelphia. And Ray Didinger has a story that perfectly sums up this moment in the rivalry. I remember Skip Bayless, the writer from Dallas, was traveling with the Cowboys at that time. And he meets the offensive coordinator, a guy named North Turner. And North Turner says, wow, the town here is really on fire about this game. And Skip says, yeah, it's how do you figure you're going to win this game tonight? And Turner said, are you kidding? Win this game? We just want to survive. It's the battle of the undefeated, the Cowboys and the Eagles. On ABC's Monday Night Football. A supercharged air of excitement as tonight two bitter rivals from the NFC's Eastern Division get it on once again. For some, this game will be etched in their memories because the pregame hype and buildup was more thrilling than what went down on the field. So here we go from the back. The kick sailing to the four-yard line. It was a thumping. The Cowboys scored one touchdown in the first quarter. Four-man rush, Aikman throws, catch made by Martin, and he gets in for the touchdown. From there, it was Eagles, Eagles, and more Eagles. If you're the Cowboys, all you're thinking about is trying to get out of town in one piece. 
Really, that's how it felt. And that's how it played out. I mean, from the very first snap of the game, the Eagles owned the game. They won the game going away. They just ran the Cowboys out of the stadium. The final score of that chilly October game was 31-7. The Eagles hung on to their undefeated record for another week. In December, the Birds went undefeated. This winning streak propelled them to a wild card spot. Their opponent would be the New Orleans Saints. They were one step closer to fulfilling their quest to make it to the Super Bowl and honor Jerome Brown. The team packed up and flew to the Big Easy. Without telling anyone, the uh, team's equipment managers, they packed all of Jerome's stuff along with everybody else's. They set up a locker for Jerome right there in New Orleans with all the other guys on the defense. So that when the players walked in the locker room, there was Jerome's locker back intact. It was really powerful. I mean, the guys on the team, they didn't expect it. They didn't know it was going to be there. But when they walked in, it just sort of reinforced this idea that, yeah, this is what it's about. Let's bring it home for Jerome. The 1992 Eagles bested New Orleans in the wild card round. They had to come from behind, but in the fourth quarter, they just took that game over and uh, they won it. And after the game was over, almost everybody on the team that you talked to, be they offense, defense, coaches, whatever, they all said that they really felt the presence of Jerome Brown that day. It was the lone playoff win of the gangrene era. The following week, the Birds' journey through the playoffs took them to Dallas. This time, the Cowboys dished out a 34-10 defeat that ended their dreams of honoring Jerome Brown's memory with a championship. That year, the Cowboys won the Super Bowl. In our 1980s Buddy Ball episode, we told you about the player strikes in 1987. NFL players were lobbying for the right to negotiate where they could continue to play after their initial rookie contract expired. Well, they finally won the right in 1993. The result of the players' fight led to dramatic roster changes across the league. Sometimes I do wonder if the core group of the Eagles had stayed intact, would they have been able to dethrone the Cowboys? That's a great question. I feel like after free agency, the Philadelphia Eagles had reached the end of an era of sorts. We know the change is the only constant, and that is so true in the NFL. The Cowboys under Jimmy Johnson were dominating. They followed up their 1992 championship with another Super Bowl win in 1993. Dallas really was on top of the football world. Meanwhile, in Philadelphia, the Eagles organization was undergoing a significant transition. You've been listening to Return Game, Birds, Boys, and Bad Blood, presented by NovaCare Rehabilitation. I'm Rob Ellis, along with Derek Gunn. Thanks for listening. We are headed right into 1994, so stick with us. Compassionate and trusted care. Clinical expertise. It's the cornerstone of NovaCare Rehabilitation and why they're the leading provider of physical therapy throughout the Delaware Valley.